You're listening to Surfer vs. Planet, a wave changer podcast hosted by me, Tom Wilson. Each episode features inspiring talks from the creative space where surfing and sustainability meet. I'll be talking to surfers, designers, industry experts, and original thinkers, highlighting some of the fascinating work going on here in Australia and around the world with the aim of creating a greener, cleaner, and more responsible surfing industry. Wave Changer is a program of Surfers for Climate, and you can learn more about our work at wavechanger.org and surfersforclimate.org.au. The whole team at Wave Changer and Surfers for Climate acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognise the continuing connection to lands, waters and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to their elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to the show. We've got Vipe Desai from the Surf Industry Members Association. Uh, Vipe is based in the US. He's the executive director. Uh, the acronym is SEMA, that's Surf Industry Members Association. Welcome to the show, Vipe. How's your weekend been? And it's a Monday today for you. It's Tuesday morning for me. Everything going well? Yeah, Tom, thanks so much for having me on. It's great to join you and your listeners here. Uh, yeah, it is Monday, and for uh, the last couple of days, it's been uh, nice and sunny. Uh, we've gone through about two months of heavy rain here in California, especially in Southern California. So uh, we're happy that the uh, reservoirs are filled. I think we're past the drought, and uh, the sunny weather was very welcome this weekend. I believe that you've had similar weather issues or challenges that we've had here in Australia um, with bushfires and then extreme rain. Is it concerning for you? Yeah, it absolutely is concerning. It's uh, very disruptive to our livelihoods, to industry and business. And I think once again, it's just this uh, reminder that climate change is happening right before our eyes. It's almost like a slow motion disaster. You're watching it unfold. And to see people sitting there still denying it is troubling in and of itself. Mm. So you're the executive director of SEMA, the Surf Industry Members Association. How long have you been in that role and how did you come about that role? Yeah, I've been in this role for just a little over a year, um, but I have uh, I've been very involved with SEMA for probably 20 years uh, off and on just as an advisor or a member or involved in one of the programs or the events in some way, shape or form. So while the role might be new, my involvement with SEMA has uh, at least two decades of involvement. And uh, I got involved with this because uh, the previous executive director who had been here for 20 years, a good friend of mine was ready to step down and move on to other opportunities. And, um, you know, the board and some of the members asked if I would be interested in stepping into this role. So we started having a discussion and uh, we landed on uh, the right time and everything. And here I am. I'm going to ask you straight away, what are some of the challenges that you're experiencing at SEMA? Um, the last few years have been a a difficult time for everyone with COVID and then there's all sorts of stuff going on around the world that's had a knock-on effect with supply chains and all sorts. So are you seeing a knock-on effect at SEMA and the, the surf industry um, or has it actually come out even brighter from the other side? 
You know, Tom, I think it's a little bit of everything. Um, I think the industry was uh, very strong pre-COVID and the future looked really bright because of all the exciting things that were going on from wave parks that were in development, the Olympics after Tokyo and everything. It just looked like there was a lot of runway for us. And then when COVID hit, it kind of spooked everybody. What was going to happen? The economy shut down, people staying at home, and what was going to happen to the operations and the business of the industry. And within a couple of months, we realized that this was a, a, a bit of a hidden opportunity because with more people spending time at home, uh, they were also getting outdoors more often. So there was this resurgence of energy and excitement of getting outdoors and getting in the water and surfing is a natural social distancing activity, you know, so it just made it easier for people to get into it. So I think what happened there was that people who surfed, surfed more and needed more product um, and were thinking about getting new items, boards, wetsuits and things like that. So there was a, a spending spree. But then there was also the excitement and energy around the Olympics and the quality of messaging out there for surfing from the WSL and all the different things out there. So I think a lot of new people got introduced to surfing as well. And some of the numbers that I've seen are upwards of a million new participants in the sport of surfing just here in the United States. So we saw an uptick in sales. But as, as you just pointed to, you know, there are definitely challenges that come with that. It's almost like you got high off all these people coming into the event, their participation, the buying and everything. But then with supply chain issues, delivery issues, inventory management, and now inflation, it's proven itself to be a different set of challenges. But when I look at the data that is coming in over the last year, the numbers are still better than pre-COVID numbers when it comes to sales. It's just that, you know, if you were selling a hundred surfboards, that was good. But when COVID hit and you were selling 150 surfboards, it was really good. And now that it's slowed down, people are probably selling 110 boards. So it's still better than pre-COVID, but it was a significant drop off as we're heading into this kind of like new normal that that I would say. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And we're experiencing the same here. Throughout COVID, there was a massive increase in surfing and, and riding bikes, uh, skateboarding, people walking, uh, picnics, barbecues. Um, and then we're experiencing, I think, a little bit of a dip now. And we're I think we're kind of mirroring the same as you with inflation and cost of living. And so do you see more people in the water where you are right now? You know, it's hard to tell um, if there's more people in the water or not. I surf at really different times than everybody else. I, when I was growing up as a surfer, uh, you know, my my whole thing was getting out there first thing in the morning as early as possible. Um, now I'm a little bit of a, a later you know, surfer type of a guy. I I like to get out there after everybody has kind of had their fill. And I don't mind if it, there's a little bit of bump on the water or something like that. It's like, I'd rather have less crowded conditions with a little bit of bump in the water than having glassy conditions with 
tons of people in the water. So I usually get in the water around like 10 o'clock in the morning when everybody else has got to go to work or the winds come up and they're kind of not into that. They miss their glassy conditions. But um, I, I can definitely hear from other folks that parts of uh, or different beaches and different areas are more crowded than they were in the past. But I think that's also, you know, uh, people are finding their rhythm of when they're going to go surf. They're realizing that, hey, this in this window, there's a lot of people. So let me just shift my time in the water. So I think that time period is is shifting a little bit more. And I think the newcomers to the sport aren't as adamant about getting out there first thing in the morning when it's glassy. I think they're just happy to get in the water. So if that means 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, whatever that means, I think that's that that's uh, that's kind of like the new thing that I'm seeing. Surfing is something to be learnt, and once learnt, never forgotten. And once learnt, never forgotten. Yeah, uh, first thing in the morning here as well is like peak hour uh you know everyone squeezing in their surf before work and it's actually beautiful sometimes when you've got the sun coming up and those glassy conditions but you're right the crowds are a nightmare but we so here at wave changer and surfers for climate we're focused on environmental themes do you think the surfing industry is on the right path because i I read a lot of things that that say that more could be done and personally I think we we're, we're on the right path. I would totally agree with that Tom. I think surfing and the surf industry gets a bad rap uh quite often from folks that uh scrutinize the industry and sometimes aren't able to see the bigger picture. And if there's two areas that I think um uh mislead people one is the surf industry's commitment to sustainability and environmentalism and i think the other thing that gets overlooked is the the push for diversity equity and inclusion as well gets overlooked and i believe there is a lot of a lot more work to be done but there has been a lot of work that has been done as well and I know when I talk to my members here in the U.S. and when I talk to my colleagues um, overseas, I know that there is a commitment to sustainability. It might not reach everybody's grade level of where they want to see the surf industry, but it is a process. It's uh, it's like raising a child, you know, that you, you, you have to go through the days, the weeks, the months and the years in order for them to grow. And it's the same thing, but uh, the surf industry has been committed for many, many years, if not decades, on sustainability, environmentalism, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's just, I think, our members don't necessarily scream it from the top of the mountains like other brands do, where it's part of their daily activity. They like to shout it from the rooftops. Uh, they like to talk about it in everything. And that's what consumers have known for as perhaps the standard. If you're not boasting about it and talking about it in every breath, then you're probably absent and not doing anything. Whereas I believe the brands are working on this behind the scenes and just letting the actions 
speak for themselves as opposed to going out there and waving a flag saying, hey, look at what we're doing. Yeah, sure. So if I had to put you on the spot and say, what one thing could the surf industry do better in an environmental context, um, what would your answer be to that? You know, look, I think uh, I think there's a lot of different things that the industry can do. But I think one of the big things is about the product itself. Um, consumers want products. That is the world that we live in. Board shorts, wetsuits, surfboards, all these items that we make have an impact on the environment throughout the supply chain. So there's a couple of different things to look at. The, the main root of the problem that the surf industry faces is that we have an infrastructure problem. When I say infrastructure, in order to make t-shirts, sweatshirts, board shorts, wetsuits, and all these things, we are reliant on other industries and other manufacturers to make those products for us. So those systems are still in place. We have to work within the system. If you want a board short, mate, you have to go to a manufacturer that makes board shorts. And then you have to work with them on how that product is made and how it is packaged and how it is delivered to the consumer. And there's a lot of things in between that that the surf industry does not control. So you have to work within a system. But where the surf industry has been very impactful, and I'll give you an example, is uh, when it comes to uh, board short material. Years and years ago, there was a new product that came out of fabric that was made from recycled plastic water bottles, okay? And the industry tested that product within its manufacturing process, working with the plant to say, can you take this fabric and this thread and this material and make board shorts out of it based on your machinery and equipment? That was a process that the industry had to go through. And now... Almost every brand is using this type of material throughout its supply chain. Okay, you can find this in many products from board shorts to T-shirts and billions of single-use plastic water bottles that would have ended up in the landfill or in, or in our ocean are being used to make goods from, uh, the, for these products to consumers. So, you know, there have been steps, but is that something that, you know, the industry should be shouting about? You know, maybe, but uh, this is what the industry is doing. It's looking for opportunities to, you know, lessen its impact. Uh, the other thing that we're doing right now, and we've been doing this for a year, is um, may, consumers may not know this, but a lot of garments uh, that are delivered to retail stores come in single-use plastic bags. Okay, they're protected from the shipping process and the handling process and everything. Um, you know, we want to change to a better material and we have found a material that the industry has been testing for three or four years. The problem has been durability and pricing and also it fitting into the machinery that operates the packaging at these facilities. We are now on the, the brink of this material being durable enough to go through the facilities and also priced competitively as well to allow brands to start switching over. And a handful of brands have already started implementing this, this paper bag 
within their uh, supply chain and infrastructure. So these are things that aren't necessarily visible and maybe sexy to talk about, but they are behind the scenes, incremental steps to reduce plastic waste. Yeah, I think those incremental steps, you know, they have a, a ripple effect. And yeah, just to go back to what you said about the, you know, the existing infrastructure and working with what we've got. And I think that's really important that with all items, with all products, there's existing uh, infrastructure already set up that has been producing items for decades, perhaps. And and I think that's a really big challenge for anyone that's making something new especially that needs to um, kind of reach high environmental standards. You almost need new machinery and new materials and to, to have that initial cost to do the R&D and the new materials and the new machines. It's a big challenge to switch over to a new way of working. And, and I think that's where perhaps maybe the government can help with, with that transition with grants or whatever. And I know that you guys at SEMA have grants, environmental grants, which is which is wonderful to see. We were actually thinking of applying for one ourselves. And I think the cost as well, it's really interesting that the cost is such a big thing for consumers, but also the manufacturers. If if there's a new technology that costs a lot, you know, I'm sure plastic, when it first sort of um, reared its head, was very expensive and very unique and an elitist material. Uh, and now it's everywhere. So there's no reason why we can't have eco-friendly materials that are everywhere like plastic, but I think it's just sort of getting into the market. And let me add one thing there, you know, what many of your listeners may not know is the origins of plastic. Okay. And the origins of plastic were meant to solve a problem. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, but, and now we look at it, look at the problem that they have created. Okay. But the original idea of how plastics were created and was a, was based on a problem that goes back uh, probably about 150 years, okay, where uh, one of the big pastimes and activities was playing pool, um, you know, in a, in a bar, okay, you know, with the little balls and everything, okay. Now, those balls uh, were made from ivory, which came from elephant tusks, okay, so people started to realize that collecting ivory tusks to make the cue balls and everything was very costly, very dangerous, and expensive as well. And what happens when all the elephants are gone? Okay, because they were getting harder to find. So all of a sudden, somebody came up with a replacement, which was this cellulose, celluloid type of uh, material that would replace those ivory balls. Okay, now that material is what gave way to plastics and all the breakthroughs and benefits that came along the way. But if you look and see what it solved a problem to saving elephants and not using ivory tusks, but look at the problem that it has created for us as well. So sometimes I think what we have to do is be careful about these innovations and really look at the long term picture. You know, are we solving a problem today and kicking a can down the road that will create a different issue for the next generation? I think we have to be really careful of that. And I'm not saying that plastic is not a problem that needs to be addressed down the line. It absolutely needs to be addressed today. And if not, should have been started yesterday and decades ago. But 
that's the thing we've got to figure out. This infrastructure has been created from these past innovations to make society, you know, more efficient. Um, and, you know, we're now seeing the problems of consumption, uh, especially when it comes to plastic and the impact on our landfills, on society, on human health and our oceans. The plan for our planet is remarkably simple. Reduce our impact by making sure that everything we do, we can do forever. I, I find that really interesting about the solutions. I think a lot of um, plastic and innovations came from World War as well, where they had to sort of um, rush in certain ways of, of making things um, to survive, really. And we're not in that situation now. So I think it's, I, I totally agree with what you're saying, that we should be very careful how we design and make things now so that there isn't that knock-on effect that, you know, in 50 years, we don't look back and say, okay, that thing that we created has given us a, an even bigger problem now. And, and that's why I think a lot of materials that are biodegradable are quite interesting because, you know, once they're gone, if they can break down and, and almost be nutrition back for the earth, I think that's how we, we used to function where we would use stuff and then it would naturally perish. I, I think the consumer behavior of surfers and the surf industry, particularly surfers, I think, is a really interesting one because I'm sure you you know people and, you know, it's part of the surf culture where owning boards, looking after them, treasuring them, hanging them on your wall and collecting them is a big part of surfing um, where, you know, you're really, you've got a personal emotional connection to your surfboard collection and surfers probably have a lot of surfboards in general, especially the, the pros. Do you think it's possible to change that mindset so that surfers could potentially have fewer boards, but also could we introduce something where the boards are returned to the manufacturers? So you could have a surfboard for a year and then you could return it to the manufacturer who reuses the materials. And it's more like a leasing model instead of buying, like we see with other products, you know, creating a circular system. Do you think that surfers anytime soon would be keen on that? Look, I don't see why not. I think those are really viable innovations and solutions. Um, they may not be for everybody. Uh, it depends on how quickly you move through boards, how much you surf them and what the durability of them is and what that pricing model looks like to lease a board. Um, I think it's worked very well in other instances. I mean, you can look at how it works in vehicles. Okay, so if it works like lease, leasing a vehicle, you know, and maybe you get you know, here, I think it's like 36,000 miles before you have to turn it in. So maybe there's some other component where every 12 months you get to turn in the board and do you pay $50 a month or $75 a month or something like that, whatever it might be, that board then gets passed down to somebody, it gets sold or it gets put back in inventory to be leased to somebody else at a lesser rate. Um, who knows what, what happens, but I think one of the things that I am seeing here is, um, you know, there's a there's a really interesting um, uh, surfboard manufacturer. Uh, his name is Ryan Harris. 
And I've really enjoyed learning from Ryan Harris and just seeing his mind tinker on different things. But, you know, he's he's created these shredders that you can peel off the resin off the boards, take the foam, reshape it, throw it in this shredder and everything. And then what comes out is waste. And he's able to repurpose that waste into other items and everything, too. So, you know, he'll go digging in the trash can on the weekends you know, to find a surfboard that somebody broke or tossed or something. And he's found friends who have said, hey, I got a broken board. Do you want it? And he takes it and he's turning it into it. And he's created the first zero waste surfboard factory. Okay, so I think it is possible. It once again, you know, goes back to what I said. It's infrastructure. If you're a shaper that says this is how I make boards, this is how I always made boards, and this is how I'm always going to make boards, then you're stuck in that cycle. Whereas Ryan has come up and said, you know what, this needs to change. I can't just keep making boards and accumulating all this waste. You know, he has no waste. All the different parts that comes off the surfboard, the powder, the dust, everything that comes off the resin, everything, the glassing, all that stuff gets collected and put into a shredder and repurposed into something. You know, that takes thinking. That takes extra work. That takes creating the machinery and understanding of what are the items that you can make. What molds can you make to say, oh, I can actually repurpose this waste material into fins. I can make little uh, pots for plants. I can make, you know, coasters for your drink, different things like that. I can make key rings or surf wax combs, you know, but it takes extra effort to do that. And I think that is the challenge. Can we as surfers, board builders, manufacturers take those extra steps yeah i agree and uh, yeah i've I've been following ryan for a few years i I love what he's doing and he's got a great personality and it's really inspiring what he's done and i know that other shapers i can think of two off the top of my head who have referenced ryan I, i think it was unfortunate recently ryan um had his instagram hacked or something and lost like twenty thousand followers and had to start from scratch which is a shame because yeah he's using social media as a tool to inspire others which is great to see and yeah i i've seen something recently also with a pair of uh shoes like sneakers you pay a couple of hundred dollars membership fee a year and you're allowed to return your shoes i think a couple of times a year you receive a box that you can send back with your shoes and they're made of castor bean oil. And there's a video on the website. I'll, I forget the name of the shoes, but I'll put the link in the show notes and they shred up the shoes when they send them back and they will make new ones from those materials. And I think there's examples out there that we don't see enough of. Um, You know, we're quite quick to criticize or shame things online, but I, re- I think society really needs to kind of, you know, show these pioneers more often. Is there anything that you've seen, Vipe, recently that that gives you hope for the future in an environmental context? Look, there's a lot of things that get me excited about the future of the surf industry. Um, you know, I, I, I love the fact that a lot of our brands are committed to sustainability environmental efforts and are taking steps within their organization where they can not there's not a one size fits all effort with everything everybody has to look at where they can make changes and they are making these changes and that's what i really like to see 
Um, I think the biggest thing uh, that that I see is that um, these younger brands, these newer brands that are coming in are starting with that posture of sustainability and environmentalism because the larger brands have kind of paved the way a little bit for some of these new manufacturing facilities that are using uh, better materials and everything, you know, so they're able to implement these products slowly within their product cycle. But these newer brands can start right out of the gate saying, we're going to use this factory because they're using the materials. They have the paper bags figured out and they've got everything that I would want from a sustainability perspective. They they check all the boxes so I can start with them. So I think it's the smaller brands that really have the big opportunities to pave the way on, on you know, being a good steward right out of the gate. Yeah, I've seen that too. And it is reassuring that um, it's almost giving you a competitive advantage now, I think, to have that environmental arm. Um, and from a, a SEMA perspective, um, I know that you're offering grants, but are there any other ways that you think or you, you might currently be doing to put pressure on the brands or surfers to to think more sustainably or act more sustainably? I think surfers are pressuring the brands to be more sustainable. That's where the pressure is coming from. We have heard consumers loud and clear that they want the brands that they support to be more responsible, not only in environmental issues, but also social issues as well. So that message is resonating from the consumer, the end user, um, and the brands are listening. They're taking action where they can. Um, you know, you've referenced the SEMA Environmental Fund. This organization has been around for more than 30 years. And over that course, we've given away over $10 million to nonprofit organizations working to protect our oceans and keep surfers in the water. So from our end and our members, it's not just making better product. It's also uh, donating money and funds to the environmental fund and then allowing organizations like the Surfrider Foundation, Save the Waves Coalition and Wild Coast and all these incredible organizations out there that are doing very important work in the environment that keeps us surfers in the water as well. So that's something that I think uh, doesn't get seen by the public. That is a pretty big effort. If you look at it, that was 34 years ago that the SEMA Environmental Fund was being, that was started. Before it was cool to be environmentalist. I can recall, um, you know, if you talked about the environment and wanting to protect it and you carried around a bottle or any sort of reusable material, people looked at you funny. You know, they were like, who's this guy? Stay away from him. That might be contagious. I don't want to be that environmental weirdo. Now you look at it, it is a badge of honor for mm. consumers to have a reusable bottle um, and everything. But from SEMA's perspective, we've been in this fight for 34 years. It's not something we're new involved, newly involved in or absent in by any means, you know, we have the sustainability business alliance within SEMA where brands, competitive brands come together and share best practices on what they're doing internally to reduce waste, minimize plastic waste, uh, better materials, better production operations, uh, streamlining the supply chain. You know, those are all so many different things that aren't seen 
by the public, but are making a difference behind the scenes. Um, you know, and I think the other thing too, Tom, is that, you know, I touched on it earlier, but I wanted to reference it is that, you know, while we talk about sustainability and protecting the environment, there's also an add on to that as well that is important. That is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Okay. And, you know, sometimes sustainability and DEI aren't always on the same playing field. They're kind of at the opposite ends because sustainability and environmentalism comes at a price. Okay. And sometimes that price means that product might cost a little bit more. So if we're talking about inviting more people to be part of the surf industry and surfing, we've also got to be conscious that not everybody can purchase a $300 puff jacket. Okay, so we have to look at it that way. And that's coming from a person like me who has had this incredible journey within the industry and understanding the barriers of entry for maybe people that come from marginalized communities. You know, there's a lot of factors that go into that. And I'm all about helping SEMA build on ramps for these communities to be part of this industry and this culture. But sustainability and environmentalism is, is key and helping more people get involved in the sport is part of that and you know sometimes i think people look at things in a different way if you look at it through a microscope you're only looking at your local break and when you look at your local break you say gosh there's not enough people of color in the water the surf industry is ignorant in this and they're holding people back it's not the case at all. The whole thing about, you know, uh, not having diversity is really a Hollywood thing. Hollywood has painted that picture. OK, but you can go to Hawaii. OK, and there's native Hawaiians that are surfing. You can go to Central America. You can go to South America. You can go to Africa. And there's people who surf all over the place. It's just because your backyard doesn't look diverse doesn't mean that surfing isn't diverse. You should look at your geography in that most beach communities are probably priced out of people for color. So that's what your community looks like. That's what your beach looks like. Okay. But if you go to another place, it'll probably look a lot different. And I know when I go to Hawaii or Central America or anywhere else, I see a lot more diversity in the water because those kids are learning how to surf because they're seeing their idols you know, on the tour and everything like that. So that's one thing that I would look at. But if you if you zoom out and you go pick, you pull out a telescope, look at what's going on with diversity around the world. Case in point, ISA, the International Surfing Association, okay? 111 countries now represent the Surfing Federation around the world. Okay, Sierra Leone, Cambodia, you know, Saudi Arabia, Ethiopia. I mean, look at all these countries you know, that are coming online with surfing. There's a budding surf industry that is developing in all these different regions of the world, you know, and eventually those people will make their way into the industry, surfing, hopefully into the Olympics. More people will see that diversity like they're already seeing. Look at the Tokyo Olympics, Carissa Moore and Italo Ferreira. I mean, Hawaiian and Brazilian. You know, it's already there, um, but there is still a lot more work to do. And part of our role is helping to create more on ramps 
for people to enjoy this sport, regardless of color and especially regardless of socioeconomic background. If the ocean dried up tomorrow, life would also dry up. That's where most of the action on Earth is. You should treat the ocean as if your life depends on it, because it does. I love your optimism and I really respect what SEMA have done. Um, I didn't realize that the environmental foundation or the grants has been going for so long. So that's, that's wonderful to see that. Um, and even the, the knowledge sharing, two sort of ideas or initiatives that anyone that listening or any sort of organization can learn from to have that as, as tools as part of an organization. In a more sort of broader context outside of surfing, what are your thoughts on the current environmental crisis? Do you think the planet can be saved in terms of our actions and the damage that's been done perhaps since the Industrial Revolution? Are you hopeful? Do you think the, the tide could turn? Tom, I'm cautiously optimistic about the future of this planet. Um, it is definitely a race uh, against uh, time and the planet. But what gives me hope is when I see young people who are better stewards of this planet than the adults that raised them. You know, um, I look at my own son at 11 years old and how he behaves and how he has a tremendous respect for people and planet. And I think that begins at home uh, with what we teach him. Here And I see a lot more kids doing that as well. I didn't find my environmental uh, journey until I was like 30 years old. Even though I've been a surfer since I was 14, I really just didn't really look at my role as a surfer to be uh, an activist or an environmentalist either. Um, so, you know, raising my son and helping him to understand that, you know, Plastic waste is bad. Single-use plastic waste is something that we avoid. He has his own shelf with all of his reusable containers and everything, and he's it's his go-to all the time. So I see his impact being so much more less than my first 11 years on this planet. So I think that's that's the way that we turn the tide is we we build an army of young people who will change their behavior because all the problems that we have right now aren't the aren't the aren't caused because of one thing they are there's a billion actions every single day that each one of us is responsible for and we need to change those billions of actions every single day a billion people not using a single use plastic water bottle is one part of that change billion people not using plastic utensils, a billion people using reusable water bottles, you know, and multiplying that and amplifying that and continuing it on every day. Um, that's how we're going to get to uh, that better place. It's, it's a billion actions that need to be changed every single day, billions of actions, every single human on this planet. Yeah, you're right. And I think that it is reassuring that the young people have so much passion and drive right now. And I think that 
we can be role models and teach young people the mistakes that have been made and and you know not to make those mistakes again and i i think that education from my point of view education is a really big part of that and surfers in the surf industry we deal a lot with the items the products the surfboards the wetsuits but a big part of the, another cog in the whole machine is the education and awareness um which i think you know the likes of surf rider and other kind of activist organizations do such a good job of doing i would like to now ask you uh five quick fire questions this is hang five our section at the end where if you could give a quick answer in just a few words or a short sentence number one what first got you interested in your environmental journey surf rider foundation great i think you and many others number two who inspires you the most from the environmental movement oh gosh there are so many people oh, nonprofits environmental nonprofits i i'm in awe of all these groups out there that work tirelessly for our environment for the activism and the advocacy that's who inspires me what's your coolest response to the environmental crisis that you've seen I would say Dr. Cliff Capono. To me he is just an incredible human being uh who has blended surfing and research and science and made it easy for young people to learn from and the educational component. To me I think he is one of the people in our industry leading the next generation of environmentalists and surfers with his with his actions. for sure and he he looks like a very good surfer too ripping ripping surfer question 4 your favorite marine animal octopus yeah i i mean i'm i'm guessing you've seen my octopus teacher i have but that's not the reason why i chose octopus i chose an octopus because it has many tentacles and um i find that uh i have to have my fingers and tentacles in so many different things as well that you know i i i feel like the octopus really kind of fits my, it's my spirit animal good answer and number 5 finally in our bid to save the planet can you give a short sentence to inspire others to keep going i would say don't wait for others to solve the problems that we are facing start solving the problems yourself with your own actions. Wonderful. Um Vibe it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Um you're a really interesting guy. I I feel like I could listen to you talk for a long time. Keep up the fantastic work at Sema and all the best going forward. I hope we can work together in the future and I I look forward to learning from what you and Sema are doing in the near future. Well thank you so much Tom I appreciate you inviting me onto your podcast and uh your listeners spending time with us uh if I could just share one last thing um to anybody listening to this podcast um you know I'm I'm open to ideas and suggestions please reach out to me uh you know I welcome scrutiny and accountability as does our industry we know that we're not going to find these solutions and answers on our own we're going to need everybody's involvement so if you have something 
that is groundbreaking or something we should be aware of, reach out to me. We are excited to learn from all of you out there that are fighting the good fight. Thanks for listening. And remember to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you'd like to support our work at WaveChanger, head over to our website at wavechanger.org and we hope you'll consider buying a membership for our WaveChanger Club, which features giveaways, entries into our monthly draw with amazing prizes and access to a bunch of great discounts from our partner brands. Your support allows us to expand our impact and make an even bigger difference to safeguarding our planet. See you next time.